Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11 through 11 is our sermon text this morning. Let's stand for the reading of that portion of God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 1, 5-11. through 11. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness love, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, for in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we come to your word this morning. We are sinners. We are fools. We are weak. Father, we are proud And we need your word to work us over. And so, Father, we ask that by the Holy Spirit that would occur and that we would be conformed and that process of being conformed to your Son, Jesus Christ, would continue this day through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I was thinking as I was listening to the offertory, thinking and listening, I can't do both of those things. I can only think or listen. Sorry. It's the curse of having studied music. Um, I was thinking during the offertory that there is a real appetite today in the church to fight. There's a huge appetite in the church to fight. And the appetite right now is for for young men and pastors to engage in fighting pagans. That's where the fight lies today, and that's where people want to fight. And and in fact, you know, um, several of us, three of us, were on the front lines of battle yesterday at the abortion clinic fighting on the front lines of, a, of engagement against a wicked culture and, and pagans who are killing their own children, standing there. And that, that is so popular today that if you're not engaged in that sort of ministry in, in certain reform circles, 
you are seen as a, as a, um, as a coward. You're seen as a coward. But I want to say this, that there is a fight that is more primary and more important than that one. And that's the fight against yourself. Okay, because if you're not fighting yourself, you're, if, you're not, if you haven't gone through basic training in candidate officer school, you should never be on the battlefront. Right? You should never be there. And so if you haven't mastered yourself, if you don't have um, the ability to lead even your own home as a man, then don't get engaged in the front lines of cultural battle. You're not prepared. And so there's a lot of basic training. There's a lot of, of, of uh, officer training. There's a lot of fundamentals. There's a lot of sloughing off of this flesh that we have to engage in before we are properly prepared to engage pagans without, with godliness engage pagans. If you are not godly and you engage pagans, what you're going to end up doing is just denouncing and hating them. You won't be able to love them if you haven't mastered yourself. Okay, and so this passage is about that primary battle, which is your wicked heart, your indwelling sin, your remaining mortification that has to take place before you're useful in God's kingdom. And so that's what Peter is getting at. And, and the Apostle Peter is the man to give that to us, right? He's, he's the man of all the apostles He's the one we want speaking about this because his sins of all the apostles are written the largest in, in the New Testament scriptures. And so here he is having received from the Lord and now giving to us uh, what he has learned. And, and we are called to fight ourselves, to fight our own flesh first. And that is our primary battle. Now, verse 5 begins with, now for this very reason. And by that phrase, the apostle is pointing back to the last phrase of, of verse 4. Because of your new birth in Jesus Christ, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart subsequent to your regeneration, because of the fact that Christians become partakers of the divine nature, because you have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, certain remarkable things follow. Now that, that should be a, a sort of obvious statement to us because we have become partakers of the divine nature, things should be different. Right? That's like, duh. You become partaker of the divine nature. Well, you know, it doesn't sink that deep. Ah, you become partakers of the divine nature. Because we are putting on the new self, certain things should follow. It's like saying, you know, because I've put on 25 pounds of muscle since May, I'm now able to lift much heavier objects. Right? Because I am now a partaker of the divine nature, I can do more. I am capable of more. Scripture today uh, teaches us something about sanctification, 
right? Something about growth and holiness, something about the fact that we should be making progress in our Christ-likeness, making progress. Verse 5, now for this very reason, those reasons we uh, went over a few moments ago from the, the first section of, of 2 Peter. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and the list goes on from there, laying out the qualities that should, well, rather must mark us as Christians, those who have been supplied with divine power. But there's remaining corruption in us, isn't there? Right? Can we all give a hearty amen to the fact that we continue to sin because there's remaining corruption in us? What second of, what day do you not feel that? I mean, I feel it all the time. And I'm sure you guys do too, right? Apostle Paul writes, I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Even as divine power has been given to those born again in Christ, there remains corruption. To put off that corruption Dear brothers and sisters, is, as Calvin puts it, a work arduous and of immense labor. It's arduous labor. One of the things that marks us as mankind is that we are lazy. And we do not want to have to work for what we have. We just don't want to have to work for it. In the church, we have concocted a theology that, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the religion of cheap grace. Right? Here's how he described that cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Right? So it's, it's easy without the hard, is what he says in all those things. Easy without the hard. Cheap grace. I would add, that, uh, add to that that cheap grace is also preaching holiness without the pursuit of sanctification. Preaching of it without the pursuit of it. In its ultimate form, we would call that antinomianism, a scheme in which our view of grace is so overwhelming, our view of of the grace of God is so overwhelming that it does not matter whether we sin or not. It doesn't matter as Christians whether we continue to sin or not. So the Holy Spirit's words through the Apostle Peter destroy that view of life in Christ. Destroy it. We are meant to work. We are meant to strive. We are meant to give ourselves to that arduous work of putting off the old man and putting on the new. And do not forget that verse 5's exhortation follows the remarkable statements that God has done the necessary preliminary work. He's done his hard stuff, which was easy for him, impossible for us. You've been given divine power. You've been given a true knowledge of God. You you have precious and magnificent promises that sort of blow your mind. You've become partakers of the divine nature. You've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Well, you should have a fighting chance then, right?
You should have a fighting chance against your sin. If those things are true of you, if the Holy Spirit really is in you. So therefore, make use of these present realities. Get to work. Fight and work and get engaged in this, the pursuit of holiness. Get engaged in that. Spurgeon says this, and I always say this, it's dangerous to quote Spurgeon because it'll be the best part of your sermon. But, so, just despise it a little bit and we'll go on from there. Spurgeon says, Between here and heaven, you will always have to fight. Not pagans, not abortion providers, not governments, not face masks. Yourself. Yourself. Between here and heaven, you will always have to fight more or less, and frequently the severest struggle will be at a time when you are least prepared for it. There may be smooth passages in your career, and you may for a while be like your Savior in the wilderness, of whom it is said that then the devil departed from him and angels came and ministered unto him. But you may not therefore cry, my mountain stands firm, I shall never be moved. For fair weather may not outlast a single day. Do not grow secure or carnally presumptuous. There is but a short space between one battle and another in this world. It is a series of skirmishes even when it does not assume the form of a pitched battle. He that would win heaven must fight for it. He that would take the new Jerusalem must scale it. And if he has the wits to take Jacob's ladder and set it against the wall and climb up that way, he will win the city. He will win the city. And of course, we all remember that often repeated statement of John Owen, right? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Well, here's the context of that quote that's even more helpful. It's from his mortification of sin. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Right? So there he's being, he's being pastoral. He's like, he's getting people to question, are you in the fight? Are you doing this? Is it daily? Is it something you're constantly having to come back to and you are coming back to? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is the hard work of being a Christian. We work hard at becoming more like Jesus Christ. Availing ourselves of all the means of grace by which God has made this pursuit effective. And this shouldn't get you down if you remember verses 1 through 4 of 2 Peter. Your remaining corruption is no match for the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, why are you so afraid to battle against the remaining corruption that's in you? God has given you divine power. Why so dejected about getting off your couch called sloth to fight the sin that never really satisfies you anyway? If you no longer if you are no longer under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh, why are you not delighting in this 
this slaying of sins, delighting in the fact that you have the power to put these things to death. Well, there are a lot of reasons for that, but perhaps you don't think the weapons God has given you are enough. God hasn't given you enough weapons. Right? That's blasphemous. That is blasphemous for this reason, because if you are His, He's given you Himself. He's given you the Holy Spirit, right? And, and united you to His Son, Jesus Christ. Adopted you into His household. What more could you possibly need other than, other than just a will? Just a little bit of a will to fight. Now, another reason you may be down and disregarding the weapons that God has given you, perhaps you don't think holiness is desirable. And really, I think that's what it comes down to with most people who don't want to fight their sins. They just don't think holiness is desirable. You simply prefer your pleasures to your holiness. We simply prefer our pleasures to holiness before the gaze of God. And then instantly we're all cheap gracers, right? Instantly we all want forgiveness without repentance. God, I'm a man. How could you expect me to be holy? I've indulged in this. Please, you must forgive it again. If, if you prefer your pleasures to, to holiness, then you may not have the Holy Spirit within you. Because it is undoubtedly the case that those who are in Christ long for holiness. Those who have the Holy Spirit long for holiness. That is a fundamental mark of a Christian, and our passage today would be a proof text for that statement. Right? We are called to fight our remaining corruption, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, it says, with all diligence. Diligence. What things have you done this week diligently? You've cared for your parents diligently, right? You've studied for the CLT diligently, right? You've run Wolf Industries diligently, right? Have you put to death your sins and fought against that remaining corruption diligently? Hmm. First thing to note, look at verse 5. Here's the first thing. The first thing is faith. Faith. That's what it starts with. That's where it has to start, faith. Faith, though, cannot be naked. Faith cannot be by itself. Right? That's, that's not a statement against the Reformed doctrine of sola fide, right? Which asserts that script, from Scripture that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. Yet, here's what our Reformed fathers taught. Our Reformed fathers taught that faith alone saves, but not faith by itself. Faith alone saves, but not faith by itself. Right? What does that mean? Uh, well, faith without works, as you know from the book of James, is dead. So faith is always accompanied by the qualities that will be laid out in this passage in, in 2 Peter. 
So faith is always accompanied by those qualities, and the goal is to be increasing in those qualities. Faith is not to be naked, but must have the following things as companions, right? I don't think in the qualities that follow that there is some sort of order that you get one and then you move on to the next and then you move on to the next. No, it's you've got faith, you add all these other things to faith. That's, that's what this, this means, right? Add all these things. So what exactly is mentioned here? Let's walk through these things. To our faith is to be added moral excellence. Moral excellence. I thought of going, (laughs) I thought of on each of these characteristics, trying to find somebody from culture and somebody from scripture to give us examples, but it got really hairy. Um, And so I'm not doing that. I will leave those things to your uh, self-examination and imagination. But to our faith is to be added moral excellence. We could also translate that single Greek word here, virtue. Virtue. Now this is the same word that is used in verse 3 when it speaks of God's own glory and excellence. That same word is virtue or moral excellence there. This means, it means moral goodness. Perhaps we could think of this as the active part of God's holiness which is really a passive state of purity, right? Virtue is that, is, is the, is that all that one does is, is moral. It's moral. It's good. It's excellent. It honors God, right? God can only act in this manner. God, God is always virtuous, always morally excellent, un, uh, completely pure, We too, in striving against our flesh, which seeks to be virtuous and do what is morally degenerate, must seek to add to our faith in Jesus Christ a life that is virtuous, that doesn't just incline toward the good, but is good. It is to be ethical. It is to keep the commandments of God and as the true foundation of virtue. It is is to have the attitude that's demonstrated in Psalm 119. I love your law. If you have added virtue to your faith, you will be the kind of person that abhors lying, that uh, loves honesty even when it hurts. You will be the kind of person that abhors television commercials because they just make you covet. And you will be the kind of person who loves being satisfied in your salvation alone. Uh, On we could go through the Ten Commandments, right? at the the locus of a definition of of virtue. To our faith is to be added knowledge. We talked about that last time. It is to know God. And in knowing God, it is to love him and delight in thinking about his virtue. If you have added knowledge to your faith, you'll be the kind of person that delights in the preaching of the word. You'll be the kind of person who delights in the study of God's word. Right? You won't miss a men's triple B. You won't miss a women's Bible study because it's another resource for you to learn about your Lord. You won't miss it. You'll, be, you'll read theology, not to puff yourself up, but to know the object of your love. You'll, you'll study theology to know God. You'll not be the type of person whose knowledge of God plateaued when they were 21. 
as part of uh, as part of a college group. It will also mean growing in your knowledge of the corruption and danger of this world. Christians should not be naive about the wickedness and corruption of the world and of those in her, as we learn about the purity of God. Next, to our faith is to be added self-control. The Apostle Paul wrote, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So self-control means self-mastery. Mastering yourself. Right? It is the ability, it is the the ability to say no to yourself, and it is the ability to say no to specific things, no to your anger. It is the ability to say no to your lust. It is the ability to say no to your self-pity, right? It is the ability to say no to your mouth, which is about to say something really stupid, right? It's the ability to say no to your personality, right? It's the ability to say no to being shy, and that sort of pride. It's the ability to say no to being brash, and that sort of pride. And this really does require knowing yourself, knowing your own temptations, knowing what sets you off, knowing where you lack virtue, knowing your tendencies in, in all kinds of different situations. But if you have added self-control to your faith, you'll be the kind of person that lives all the time in the presence of God. You will delight to live in the presence of God because, because this is an, inter, an internal battle. Those who give themselves to their sin when they are, are alone or who let their thoughts run rampant all the time believe they can sin without God seeing. Those who have self-control know that He is always watching. Always watching and that every moment is an opportunity to prefer prefer his virtue to their self-gratification. And so that's why I say to be self-controlled is to live in the presence of God with a good conscience. The man with self-control is like a city with impenetrable defenses. If you are not in the practice of saying no to yourself, you will instead be like a city that has no defenses and just lies open to the enemy, ready to be taken. Next, to our faith is to be added perseverance, or this could be translated steadfastness. To persevere in this sense means to stay on course in your walk with God. It means that when trials come, you don't resort to drink, but that you simply carry on by faith. You're steadfast. Means you keep your head down and focused on your work. It means to not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you to, for your testing. It means to be steady. It means to be unflappable. It means to be immovable. If you have added perseverance to your faith, you'll be the kind of person that isn't swayed by the latest unverified headline on Facebook. Right? I mean, I'm so easily manipulated. 
it's incredible how easily I'm manipulated. Right? But those who are persevering in their faith, those who are steadfast, those, know, those who know what's what and who's got the power will not be moved. You'll have a constant sense of your preservation by God and your duty to love Him by obeying His commands. The persevering man is the kind of man that has a well-worn Bible. He doesn't rise and fall with every one of his thoughts or emotions. Right? He's got the Word of God dwelling in him richly as a vast resource that he can push out every one of his godless thoughts. Persevering. To our faith is to be added godliness. One commentary I, was, I read was helpful in that it made a distinction between godliness and holiness, which seemed to be synonyms to us. Um, godliness, he wrote, is a quality which is very close to and overlaps with holiness. Holiness refers to being set apart to God. Godliness emphasizes devotion to God from another vantage. It refers to a Godward heart attitude and direction which impacts our actions, right? It impacts our actions. Godliness works out in what we do. In other words, it is holiness that derives from a desire to be like God. So in that sense, it takes a knowledge of God, it takes a love for God, for godliness to even be possible. But if you have added godliness to your faith, you'll be the kind of person that imitates Christ. Because to do so is to become like that which is most beautiful to you. Godly man is awkward among worldlings. Have you, have you known godly men who don't seem to fit into any context? You know, they're, they're just so godly that wherever they get, they speak godliness. And it's like, can't you relax a little bit and just help us to get along? Can't you just chill? Right, but the... the but this is the way it should be. The godly man is awkward among worldlings because he seems to be a constant rebuke to those around him. The godly man is, is, the, is the sort of guy who's uh, impatient with incessant talk about football and television shows. It's just it's like, can we talk about God? Can we talk about our Savior? Can we stop chatting about the meaningless nothings of this world. When you're around a godly man, you don't even bring up football or television shows. We certainly overrate relatability, don't we? I mean, as Americans, we always want to be relatable. And it's completely overrated. It's, it leads to so much godlessness. We think it's, it's, it is better, more Christian, in fact, to be able to be on other people's level, to be personable, to be able to build bridges than we think it is to be godly and let the bombs fall where they fall. Godliness will always make you odd. And... Would that we were more willing to be odd because we knew our Lord and what honors and delights Him and, and that was our constant mindset. Next, to our faith we are to add brotherly kindness. This is to be committed first and foremost to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I've seen a lot of brotherly kindness in the last weeks 
as the Foltzes were cared for. And it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Wonderful. Many of you watched their kids. Many made meals, right? Showed sympathy. Just showed sympathy at a visitation, memorial service. Many of you have made calls. To have brotherly kindness is to stick together like members of the same family, even though you're not members of the same blood family. You're members of the family of Christ. It is to come outside of yourself. It's to try to put yourself in other people's shoes. It is to try to be sympathetic and then to put that motion into action by caring for others. But if you've added this character to your faith, you will be the kind of person that can set aside a to-do list. That's one of the hardest things I have to do. You will be able to set aside a to-do list for the sake of somebody who has a need. Man, it's tough for some of us to do that, right? You know, on every application for jobs, they ask you, or for the pastorate anyway, they ask you whether you're a task-oriented or people-oriented person. And it's so ridiculous that they would ask that of pastors, right? No, no, just task-oriented. Okay, see you later, you know? Um, you have to be people-oriented. You also have to, to, you have deadlines each week, right? You do have to be task-oriented. But anyway, my whole point is that when we have brotherly kindness coursing through our veins, when we hear the need of a brother or sister in Christ, we, we, it suddenly takes precedence. It should. It should take precedence. So often we make other choices, though, don't we? You'll, you'll even be willing to get your carpet dirty to make somebody feel at home. Right? You'll, you'll be like Mel Lockhart. That's what you'll be like. He's a man who shows forth brotherly kindness. Right? You'll be so committed to your church family that you'll weep with those who weep and you'll rejoice with those who rejoice and it will be every day that you do so. To our faith... Then finally, we are to add love, agape. Now think of the Apostle Peter writing this, the one that Jesus specifically asked three times about his love for him. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I mean, even to add that more than these in there is like taking the question up several levels. Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, which is a wonderfully reformed response. You you are omnipotent, you are omniscient, you, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. To love is to be committed to those who may or may not be lovely to you. 
To love is to be like God who loved us even while we were still sinners. If you have added love to your faith, you will be the kind of person that is patient, is kind, is not jealous, doesn't brag, isn't ignorant or arrogant, doesn't act unbecomingly, right? doesn't seek its own, isn't provoked, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You will be powerfully in the Holy Spirit if you love. Is there anything quite as powerful as love? It, it, to love is to annihilate yourself. It is to annihilate yourself and make much of, or make everything of everybody else. And that's the love. So that's the list. It's overwhelming when we contemplate it, isn't it? But the next passage makes it even more overwhelming. The Holy Spirit insists that these qualities must be increasing. There is sanctification in the Christian life. There is not stagnation. Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will abundantly be supplied to you. Now, why did I say that this passage seems overwhelming? Because if you've been a Christian longer than five minutes, you know that growth in the Christian life is very difficult. Very difficult. And when the Apostle Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, Well, the fact that we have the same old sins that we've always struggled with is very discouraging, isn't it? How long will I give myself to lust? How long will I give myself to anger? How long will I give myself to dishonoring my mother? How long will I give myself to discontentment? How long will I spin my tires and not add to my faith all these glorious qualities that we talked about earlier? Well, I have two things to say about that. If you feel that you have none of these things and that they certainly aren't increasing, there is only one thing for you to do, which is to go to God and to ask for help. Go to God and ask for help. Go to God and ask for help. It's, it's the only, you know, it, it is only by the, the power of the Holy Spirit in you that you will make progress in your sanctification. That doesn't at all mean that you mustn't work. It has to be the hardest work of your life to keep from resisting the Spirit. You must go to God and with a prayer of genuine concern, right? You must go to God in humility with a prayer of genuine concern and ask God to give you what he demands from you. 
Ask him to give you what he demands from you. We mustn't approach God as Augustine did, right? You remember his prayer, give me chastity, but not yet. That's not a genuine prayer of concern for his holiness. But so often we pray like that, don't we? We'll confess the sins that we want to give up. And we'll avoid confessing the sins that we don't want to give up. Are you like me in that? Do you do that? But go to God in genuine prayer. And, and, and part of going to God genuinely in your prayer is to go hating your sin. You have to hate your sin, not secretly loving it and secretly giving yourself to it, but hate your sin and genuinely ask him to give you holiness. That's the first thing. The second thing is that each of us has a tendency to fixate on that one sin that overwhelms us. Don't we? For men, it's lust and pornography. Right? Whatever that besetting sin may be for you. For, you know, for women, it's chronic discontentment. Uh, for others, it may be anxiety, anger, laziness, pride. But when we fixate on that one sin, we lose sight of the work that God is doing in us elsewhere. We really do. We think holiness is only going to be obtained when I overcome that one sin, which is not true. That is not true. There's a whole host of other sins that you have to overcome for true holiness. There are many, many sins that we must put to death. And even though you may remain struggling against your anxiety, you should be able to see yourself putting to death other sins. Perhaps you've been controlling your tongue. Praise God. You've lusted like a donkey, but you've controlled your tongue. Praise God for that. Ask God for more of that holiness, right? Perhaps you've been loving others better by praying for others. Praise God. See that growth, right? Now, but, but now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't fight hard against those one big besetting sins, you should fight those with the biggest guns. They are your enemy, but don't be myopic, right? Our sanctification is progressive and extensive. And so the Holy Spirit may be renovating other rooms in your heart. And that's encouraging. That should be encouraging. Look for those things so that you don't grow discouraged and then when discouragement sets in, you become disheartened. And when you're disheartened, you shut down. And when you shut down, you stop fighting all your sins. But look at verses 8 through 11. When the qualities laid out for us earlier are increasing, they render us useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that when the qualities are not increasing, we are useless and unfruitful in our knowledge of Christ. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, it says in John 15. It is your Father in heaven's will that you bear fruit. You cannot be the fig tree that had no fruit in it or on it. Even when it is not the season for figs, God expects you to be producing figs. 
And this fruitfulness should delight your soul. Your fruitfulness is you're availing yourselves of the power of God to bring him glory in this world. And it's to just bring peace to your soul and your conscience. Or would you rather continue to serve your flesh and serve your own glory? No. No. We enjoy our God by by producing fruit for him. That's how we enjoy our God. And remember this, do you want to do great things for God? Right? Do you want to produce fruit that honors him? Well, the only way to do so is to grow in holiness. That is the singular way to do great things for God. You don't need an MDiv, though that might sanctify you in certain ways. Right? You don't need money, though the hard work that gets you that money may sanctify you in ways, right? You don't you don't even need a winsome personality. I'm proof of that. Though fighting your ugliness might be wonderful sanctification, right? What you need, though, is sanctification. Growth in brotherly kindness, growth in godliness, growth in self-control, growth in steadfastness. So too often we focus on what we think of as our gifts that must be used for the glory of God when in fact what we ought to do is focus on our sanctification, which will then render us useful for life in the church. Notice also that the Apostle Peter says that those who lack the qualities that he laid out are blind or short-sighted, having forgotten their purification from their former sins. To be fruitless is to have forgotten something really important about yourself. To be fruitless and to lack growth is in godliness is to forget or to be blinded to the fact that you have been cleansed from your sin. It's to forget that God has cataclysmically redeemed you. It's to forget that as if it's unimportant. Here's how Calvin put it. They who were still rolling in the filth of the flesh had forgotten their own cleansing. For the blood of Christ does not become a washing bath to us that it may be fouled by our filth. In other words, if you think that a naked faith that lacks any growth in holiness is good enough, you're wrong. There is a necessity to sanctification. There is no such thing as a nominal Christian who doesn't commit his life entirely to Christ. No, that is no Christian at all. The Christian inexorably gives the rest of his life to fighting his sin and producing fruit for God. But someone may well say, you you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works, says James. Fruitfulness is the undoubted result of saving faith in Jesus Christ. It is the proof that you are connected to the vine. And indeed, that is where the Apostle Paul go, or Peter goes. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now stick with me here. Verse 10 makes it clear that your salvation depends not upon your works, 
but upon God's calling and choosing, electing you. Your faith is the means, the works are the fruits and proof, and the fundamental source of your salvation is God's choice. Verse 10 could be paraphrased like this. There is an alternative to falling away from Christ. It is found in the practice of holiness. The alternative to falling away from Christ is practicing holiness. It's not this neutral zone. There's no neutral zone in the Christian life, right? You're either falling away or pursuing God. If you consistently pursue and practice holiness, you will never stumble. You'll never stumble. Yes, there's a long journey ahead, even if it is just a few days we have left on this earth battling our sin. But there's still a long journey ahead. But take heart, notice the last words of this passage. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that will give you eternal life, that will abundantly supply you with entrance into his eternal kingdom. That he supplies it is, uh, to you is due to the fact that it is his to give. It is his kingdom, and he will give it to you. That he supplies it to you is amazing. It is your only hope. That he supplies it to you is the reason that your striving to pursue holiness will lead to fruitfulness. Right? That he supplies you entrance into his kingdom is the impetus you need to dedicate each moment of your day to the kind of thankfulness that is expressed best in the pursuit of holiness. Thank God by being like God. Thank God by, by pursuing his, the, those things that de- he delights in, which is ultimately himself and his being. Amen?